You know, at this stage in my life, when I was a small kid, if you remember being a small kid, for some of you that was closer than um, for some of us others, but when I was a small kid and they would say it was nap time, to me, that was miserable. When it was rest time, that was miserable, especially for a kid with, with ADDs all kind of all over the place. When they said, roll out the mat and take a nap, um, they might as well, you know, can I punch you in the face? Um, but as I'm pushing 40 now, um, rest time, nap time is awesome. It's amazing. Laura and I have a consistent Friday night date night. We have for now 18 years um, and believe that it's one of the strengths of our marriage is consistently setting apart time um, to spend time together, to look each other eye and ask deep questions. Um, but sometimes when we have a babysitter, like I know that my parents are going to be watching the kids overnight, uh, we'll have all of these grandiose plans. And by Friday afternoon, we'll look at each other and say, hey, since the kids are going to Nana and Papa's house, let's just go home. Let's like go through the drive-thru, let's go to the house, and let's get in the bed. It's 5 o'clock. Yeah, I know. It's 5 o'clock. And 5 o'clock at the house with no kids is rest time. Okay? We long for those moments of just 10 minutes, just, I need to sit here for 10 minutes. We long for rest. I mean, what is one of the most common statements that you often hear in our culture nowadays? I'm tired. I'm tired. What have, what have you been doing? Well, I've just got a lot going on. I'm busy, and I'm really tired. I need some rest. Well, Jesus continues um, his ministry uh, throughout the book of Matthew and throughout even today, and, and we're, we're learning what it means to be citizens in the king's kingdom. And today we're going to talk about ultimate rest, eternal rest, that is only found in the person and work of Jesus. In verses 20 through 24, um, Jesus, again, he sent out these disciples. They're going to these cities. And if you remember back in chapter 9 or 10, wherever it was, that Jesus, when he sends them out, he, he tells them that you're going to come to some places and they're going to reject you. And for you to kind of shake the dust off of your feet. But Jesus has been traveling all throughout Capernaum. He's now sending his disciples to preach and to teach, to cast out demons, to heal the sick if need be. And in maybe some rare cases, we don't really have any episodes of this that we know of, of them even, they have the power to raise people from the dead. So Jesus sends out these people and he continues to do this ministry. And in every crowd, including this one, I imagine that there are people who are desperately following after Jesus. They're disciples of Jesus. They love Jesus. They follow after Jesus. They're treating Jesus like the king that he is. All of their hope and security is found in the person and work of Jesus. And yet, there are also people who are just kind of intrigued with Christianity. Uh, they think it's a good way to raise their children. Um, they think it's a, a good social club for them. Maybe they don't have any friends, and the church is a welcoming place where they can make some of those. So there are people who absorb who Jesus is, and yet there are people in those same seats or same cities who are rejecting Jesus. In those first verses, 20 through 24, Jesus you know, calls out these woes. And what is a woe? He's, he's rebuking these cities. 
He's traveling around, he's healing, he's doing all these miraculous signs, and he's rebuking them. And the Bible tells us here, and if you have your own Bible and you want to underline and circle that, it says, why, why, do they, why does he rebuke them? They did not repent. See, all the miracles, all the signs and wonders are essentially fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture that one day when the Messiah comes, you will know that he is the Messiah because he does all of these things. And so one of Matthew's texts, context, and purposes, and themes in writing was to make sure that Jews understand that Jesus is the foretold Messiah of the Old Testament. So that's why Jesus does all of these things. And so he's traveling around, he's fulfilling all of these prophecies, and yet the people are not repenting. They're not worshiping him as king. They're not trusting him as Messiah and as Lord, and they are not repenting. So Jesus is saying, man, I rebuke you. You're, you know, woe to you. He's instilling warnings to these groups of people. He even goes on, as we read in the Old Testament, there's these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, that Jesus or God destroys because of their unfaithfulness and unwillingness to repent. And there are kind of these, you know, known places, like when I say Vegas, you know, we kind of get this idea of these cities immediately that come to our minds. And, and Jesus tells these cities, and this would have been extremely offensive to these people that were listening this day. He tells them that if I would have shown up to Sodom and it would have done all of these miracles, guess what Sodom would have done? They would have repented. Like Sodom would still exist. Did you know that archaeologists cannot even find where Sodom is? It is that destroyed. Okay? And yet Jesus steps on the scene. And he said, if they would have saw me healing the blind man, if they would have seen me calling the, the, the lame to walk, the blind to see, the, the, the dead person to be resurrected, they would have repented. So woe to you, people who see the works of God through the Messiah and do not turn and follow after him. In verse 25... He continues, after this rebuke, he goes into praying. It's kind of an odd transition that Jesus makes. What does he say? Then he began to denounce the cities. Excuse me, that's what I just talked about. In verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will so after this rebuke you're like you need to repent this is warning 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 thank you god for giving this wisdom not to the earthly wise and those who understand but thank you for giving this to the children he even goes as far as to say this you've hidden it from the wise You've hidden it from those who understand. When Jesus is talking here, he's not just simply saying that children can be saved and adults can't, but it's a, a, sim, a symbolic picture that he's painting for us. When we think about the wise, God is saying, man, he's, Jesus is saying through the power of the Holy Spirit, man, have hidden the, the mysteries of the gospel from the wise and the understanding. You know, earthly wisdom has a tendency to lead to pride and arrogance. Yet, we're too smart for this God thing. We're too smart for creation. 
Science has become the, the probably leading religion in the world. And, and the smarter people have a tendency to get, um, even, I'm not even talking about people with degrees, but just this kind of, we, we know, we've been enlightened. We are children of the enlightenment. And it has affected American culture probably more than any other place on the planet. We think that we have gained some sort of knowledge. We are, we are self-sufficient. He's saying, man, you have hidden it. You have hidden the Gospels, the truth and the mysteries of the Gospel. You have hidden those things from the, those who would seem to be independent and self-sufficient. He contrasts that to what? To a child. I have given it to children and revealed them to little children. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, man, think of the baby. Think of a, a small, newborn baby. And that baby comes into the world, it, and it can, it can barely open up its eyes. It knows absolutely nothing. It is what? Completely dependent upon its parents. It is, it is helpless. And so Jesus is saying, it is not the independent and the self-sufficient who understands the mysteries of the gospel. And it is those who are humble, that are dependent, that are helpless. They're completely and utterly dependent on, on God to do something inside of their lives. And Jesus thanks God for this. Proverbs 3.34, does it not tell us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? See, there are these group of people, there are these cities, they've seen all of these majestic things that God has done, and yet they do not repent. They think they know better, they think they, they know this guy from Nazareth cannot be the Messiah, and yet there are people, the poor, the oppressed, the children, the, the, the completely dependent on someone else, the helpless, the humble, he does not give this grace to the proud. He does not give this grace to those who think they can save themselves. No, He gives grace to the lowly. He gives grace to the humble. In verse 26, let's read it. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. Your gracious will. Man, this statement alone and this realization, if you're a believer in this room, I want you to know is because um, God has decided to show mercy upon you. This to drive us to humility. He's contrasting two things. You have the arrogant, you have the proud, the self-sufficient, the, the self-righteous. I can work my way to God. And over here you have a group of people who are completely and utterly dependent upon God. And this is driving them even more toward humility. Notice this hidden, hiding it is, is not done in, in anger. It is not done in malice. It is His gracious will. It is not His mean will. It is His gracious will. But when you start talking about, especially in American culture, the will of God trumping the will of man, you will nothing see anything rile up more in people than their knowledge, their understanding, their dependence when we start talking about the gracious will of God. And immediately, one of the things that they'll say is, well, doesn't it just mean that, that God is mean? 
That doesn't sound very loving, and yet it is His gracious will. Those of us who have been humbled by the reality of who we are apart from Christ are in a humbled state, and this is unmerited favor. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Quickly, I'm going to read a passage here. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, hold your place back in Matthew. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I wish, these are one of those passages I wish I could read and just sit down. But we have a tendency, because we know it so well, just to kind of glass over it. But it says in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us as adoption, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Whose will? His will. To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through the, his, his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the very mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and on things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. At the center of that passage is it's God. At the center of the passage is Jesus. At the center of the passage is the Holy Spirit. It is according to His will, His purpose, His freedom as King, as Creator of all things to do with us and with this world as He so pleases. And so this drives us not toward arrogance, but it drives us toward humility. The only way into the kingdom is through complete dependence on God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work inside of you and I. Is this not what we covered when we started talking about the Sermon on the Mount? Is this lowly? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. All of this Sermon on the Mount stuff is playing out in the ministry of Jesus. Remember, the poor in spirit is, is not just saying that this, this person that is a, a physical beggar, but is a, a person who is driven to humility at their own wretchedness, at their own depravity, and they are the, this beggar that is crouched in the corner wanting to hide in embarrassment from their sin, who gently reaches out their hands in hopes that someone will grace them with food, with shelter, with clothing, with a life. And yet Jesus says that is us. That is us. We are driven to this humble, humble state. Blessed are the poor. Approved 
are the poor. Approved are the humble. In verse 27 it reads, All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Some things that we learn from this passage. No one knows the Father, or the Son, excuse me, no one knows the Son in, in the depths of all ways like the Father. No one knows God the Father except the Son. And there's, um, we need to understand this. The Trinity in and of itself is a perfect relationship. They had no need for creation. Simply out of their gracious will. As the book of Genesis would tell us, let us create them in our image. The plurality of the Trinity is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. God does not need human relationship. He is perfect relationship in and of himself, yet so chooses by the counsel of his perfect will to create you and I, placing us in stewardship over the earth, and yet sin has come into the earth, and it has it caused us to be broken, and our earth to be broken, and for us to seek to, to win over God, and to be greater to God, to be God ourselves. And yet, when we come to saving grace, we are driven toward humility at the realization of what God has done. I don't know about you, but I think that there is great power and significance in a very small word here. If you look at this passage, and if you have your own Bibles and you want to circle this, I encourage you to do so. It says, All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, Jesus, in his, in his own righteousness, could have ended with no one knows God. And only God knows me. And yet, God, who is rich in his mercy, in love he predestined us, in grace he willed us to himself. And in doing so, and is placed into this passage. And so he tells us that there are people on this earth who are the enemies of God who can also know God and know Jesus according to the counsel of his gracious will. God sends Jesus with the purpose to restore our broken relationship with Jesus. Now, there are some, I would consider, or three blasphemies here that a lot of people in our culture and in this world would consider that Jesus is doing. Number one, to the Jews, it would have been blasphemous for them to say that all authority has been given to him. This is blasphemy. This is one of the reasons why they kill Jesus, why they want to put Jesus to death, is because he is declaring that God's authority has been given to Jesus. According to the Jews, this would have been blasphemy. To Muslims, for God to have a son, this would have been blasphemy for him to have done this. But also, I would say that this is American blasphemy because Jesus reveals that God is the one that restores relationship to humanity as he chooses. As he chooses. 
In the words of J.C. Ryle, nothing will stir up the angst of man. This is paraphrased, but, but nothing stirs up or gets people riled up more, I would say, especially in American culture, than the idea that God is sovereign. Yesterday I was talking to one of my pastor friends here in town, and he said his wife was at a, a, a Bible study in town. There's some, like, some discourse taking place in this community Bible study because someone had been preaching or they were doing a Bible study this week on, on election and God's will and all these sorts of things. And this lady was raised Church of Christ and she just absolutely flipped her gourd. She was appalled, they said, and used those terms. I'm appalled at this. Nothing will cause a person, I know because when I, began, when I became a Christian and I began to read texts like this, I became extremely angry at God. Became, it, this cannot be true. This, this means that I'm not in as much control as I thought that I was. This, this cannot be true. Instead of seeing it as the only way, as the most gracious way, that if it is not this, then, then all of us will end up in hell. And yet... Scripture over and over and over and over and over from Genesis to the book of Revelation sees this as the, the beauty of the gospel is that God has done it. It is Him. It is for Him and by Him. To remove sovereign grace from the gospel is to remove all the good news from the gospel. If we, if we take sovereign grace out of the gospel, then that means I've got to bring something to this. That I've got to will up something within myself to offer God that God isn't sovereign controlling, but, but I, I partner with God, and we're Batman, and, and I'm Robin. We partner together to accomplish this salvific work. And yet, that is not in the scripture. That removes the good news. The good news is that God does this in his gracious hand. And the, the reality that my life is not in my hands. I want you to know in America where it says, you know, kind of take up your straps, through your boots, kind of get gritty, work harder, dive into it more desperately than you ever have before. And that's what causes change. The true freedom, brothers and sisters, comes in the reality that my life is not in my hands. Guess what? When God chooses, we come. When God chooses, we come. In John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Brothers and sisters, this is great news. There should be rejoicing in this house today. If you truly are a follower of Jesus, I want you to know it is because God Almighty has, has seen you in your humble state and has called you out of your self-righteousness, out of your self-promotion, out of, out of your self-ability to create religion, to try to save yourself and to be the God of your own world. God has called you out of that graciously and humbly, as we often say here at Mission. Is that, it's not that, that there are, are, are people in hell, but that the bigger question, the deeper question, the more kindness question is, is why would God allow anyone to come into heaven? And it is because of his gracious, gracious will. See, I don't know about you, but my choices are finicky. My choices are finicky. 
If, if, if it's all up to me and my will and my choice, then I can quickly unchoose depending on my circumstances. And yet, what are we reminded of in John? All who God calls, all that the Father has given. I mean, think about that for a moment. If you're in Jesus, it is because God gave you to him. Let that sink in for a moment. Your identity, my identity, if we're in Jesus, is completely changed. Therefore, we serve, as we're learning about in our MCs. Therefore, we're disciples, as we're learning about through Saturate. Therefore, we, we are family. Why? Because of our identity is completely different. And why? It's because God snatched you out of the hell that you deserve and gave you to the hands of Jesus. And please don't tell me that Jesus has a terrible grip. If Jesus has got you, he's got you. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. I don't know why we get so, well, I don't want him to be the author. If he's not the author, then hell-bound are you. And I call you to repentance. Call you to trust in Jesus today in your own desires and your own will. Brothers and sisters who come from this perspective, I want you to notice something, though. Jesus states this prayer, but it is an introduction to what? Evangelism. Jesus gives a reminder of sovereign grace. And then does what? Verses 28 and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus, he throws it up and he says in his prayer and in these statements, I want you to know that it is God who draws, it is God who saves. And yet what does that immediately do? It leads him to evangelism. It allows him, because he knows all things, because he's in all control of all things, to rest in the truth of God's sovereignty. And, and it immediately goes from praying, from making this statement, to doing exactly what John has told us in chapter 6, verse 37, saying, come to me. Come to me. Man, what a beautiful piece of Scripture. Come to me, those who labor. Come to me, those who are heavy laden. See, brothers and sisters, the Jews during this time, as we've talked about multiple times, and we'll continue to because they brought up in Scripture, but these Pharisees have created a system of legalism that, that weighed them down over and over and over. They were self-righteous, and they were burdened down by all the do's and don'ts that, man, if I do not follow this law perfectly, then I'm I'm going to go to hell. And it laid upon them tightly. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, verse, chapter 23, verse 4, Jesus speaking of these Pharisees, he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. See, that's what legalism does. It is often placed a system of circumstances and expectations upon someone else saying, man, they better follow these or they are not going to understand 
um, salvation. They're not going to enter into the kingdom of God that he has out for us one day. And so they keep weighing this on and weighing them on and weighing them on. And, and this burden becomes so much. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? That the Pharisees are unwilling to follow these things, but they have the expectations on everyone else. I've asked Jaden to come help me today. He's my friend. Everybody say hi, Jaden. High fives. All right. All right, big boy. Put that on. That heavy? Yeah. So the, the outside would look at, at these people who were supposed to be like children before God. And, and they would take their, their different laws and different expectations, these, these heavy pieces, and, they, and they, would, they would place it on top of them, unwilling to follow it themselves, but expecting them to wear it all the time. Could you imagine wearing that every day? Would they get really heavy? Would you like doing that? Would you like to sleep on that? No, it wouldn't be fun at all. All right, give it up for Jaden. Thank you, Jaden. Good job, buddy. You did awesome. So we, we see this placing of these burdens on these people. The heaviness of sin. The heaviness of self-promotion. David Platt once said, man, we give him our complete and utter inability to obey God. See, brothers and sisters, one of my major concerns for our country, for our world, for the church in America is that we are more about behavior modification than we are understanding our identity in Jesus. We're, we're more about making sure that man, our kids don't end up drinking too much or, or doing drugs or, 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 or you know, having um, immoral, immoral relationships with others. We just, we just don't want them to cuss. So let's, let's take them to church to make sure that they don't say curse words or that they're nice and that they're good citizens and that they vote Republican. This is the mentality that so many people have is that, man, we just need to get people to change their behavior. See, if we, we believe that if we change our behavior, we get God. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is is God gets us. And when God gets us, He changes our behavior. It is in that, that order. Jesus isn't calling us to live better moral lives. It doesn't take God to be a culturally a moral person. There are lots of, quote-unquote, good people out there that do not know God, that are much better morally than you and I are, and yet they do not know this salvific work of God. There's no rest found in our own ability, brothers and sisters. Rest is found. And knowing, and you got to get this, press into this truth, rest is not found in your own ability. Rest is found in knowing I bring nothing to the table. What did you bring to the cross? But sin. Sin. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the true freedom found inside of Christian life. Now, I know any time that we start talking about this, people are like, well, you're just saying people go live any way they want to. I'm not saying that because here's what I know about the gospel and the rest of the, the scripture that we have is those whom God has truly saved, guess what? They work, they, or they live in, in the person and work of Jesus, and he is constantly sanctifying their lives and removing. He's, that's a lifelong process and to the point of glorification where he either comes to get his bride or he takes us to himself. And, and in that process, though, it is a slow-moving process process but the freedom that man i can't i can't will this enough to get myself better i can't will this enough to to get myself um in a salvation if i'm struggling with this sin i just can't grit and bear it enough and come up with my own strength within me no our strength is only found in jesus i brought nothing to the salvation table if anything i'm pushing away from the table i don't want to eat that God, and rich in his mercy, calls me. And when he calls me, son, son, come to me. See, when Jesus changes my identity from sinner, from enemy, from wretched, from uh, having the inability, when he changes my identity from those things to son, then that changes everything. That's where true freedom is found. In the words of Martin Luther, he said this, here's the bottom line. The bottom line falls out of all merit, all powers and abilities of reason or of, of the free will of men, dream of, it all counts nothing before Christ, God. Christ must do and must give everything. In this room tonight, if, if you are a brother and sister in Christ, if you have been saved, I, I want you to know that it is because you, it's not because you got the perfect prayer down. It is not because you've been to church enough times and that God is finally impressed with you. It's, it's not that you didn't have anything to drink this week. It's not that you didn't do drugs this week. It's not that you didn't struggle with pornography this week. No, it is because God did everything to bring you to this place, to bring you to the knowledge of who he is. He goes on here and uses a very common illustration for these people the illustration of a yoke. A yoke is typically two oxen, and you'd place this wooden piece um, upon them that allowed a person to then plow with a, a big plow behind them, and they would guide and they would whip on these oxen, and, and these oxen who are bound together by this yoke could accomplish the work before them. Jesus being a carpenter, it's probably very likely that Jesus probably even made these. And Jesus, what, is he, what does he say here? Brothers and sisters, look at this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and, and you will find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This yoke is very different than the weight that the Pharisees have placed amongst the people. Jesus' yoke is very different. See, what the Pharisees would do and what their expectations would do and what they would do to each other is they would place this weight on you, much like they would an ox, and then they get to step back and be the person with the whip whipping you to make sure that you stay in the, the yoke of the bondage of the law. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying completely different. What does he say? Take my yoke upon you. 
See, it's a, it's a very different image that Jesus is pay, par, plant, planting here. Jesus is saying, I, I am under the yoke. I am under it. You take my yoke. Jesus is saying, I, I'm under the weight of it. I, I'm carrying it. And yet I'm going to invite you to, to, to take the other half of the yoke. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, your parents probably growing up used this against you in dating non-Christians. It says, do not be unequally yoked. The original context of that is, is a business agreement. That you shouldn't be in business agreements and contracts with people who are not believers. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Okay. Now, does it have implications? Ladies, gentlemen, if you're single, should you date a non-Christian? No, you shouldn't. That is unwise. Okay. But the, the passage here is, do not be unequally yoked. And yet Jesus tells us in his context, he wants you to know it's unequally yoked. As the Pharisees and the legalists and, and, and those who would be, uh, you know, just corrupt religiosity are back in there whipping you into shape and making sure you've got to have everything all together. Jesus is saying, man, I'm, I'm under the yoke. I'm inviting you to come next to me. And it is equivalent to a, a rhinoceros and a mouse. And you're the mouse and God is the rhinoceros. And he's leading, he's guiding. You're going to go wherever that rhino is going because you're you're a mouse, and he's a rhino. And Jesus is saying, I've got this. Walk alongside of me. Come with me. Jesus doesn't tell us this and then leave us and forsake us. No, Jesus walks alongside of us. He does all of the work. Jesus does the heavy lifting. When I used to work out, and um, I finally convinced Justin to go with me, a few years ago, it was always fun when you'd put several plates on a bench press and I could act like I was lifting, but I wouldn't be. And Pastor Justin is standing over me like, he's doing all the work. And I'm just like, I'm getting all red-faced and I'm acting like I'm pushing. I'm just like, I'm not doing that. And he, I mean, we would look at each other because he would do it to me too. And we'd be like, are you lifting? Are you helping? I'm dying down here. Jesus does all of the heavy lifting. Jesus has done all of the heavy lifting. He took the full weight of the yoke of sin and carried it to Calvary where he bled and he died for it and he defeated it. That's why he's able to say it is finished. What is finished? The work is done. And oh, what a blessing it is, brothers and sisters, that, that God would look onto him and pardon me and pardon you this is the blessing of being under the yoke of jesus it's it's have you ever had to to lift something with a lot of people so something is really heavy and you get about i don't know five or six guys five or six girls and and you're like okay we all need to move this and people get on the corners and have you ever been in that situation where they've got it but you don't want to seem like that guy or that girl, so you keep your hands on it, but you know you're doing absolutely nothing, right? The people at the corners probably are packing it, or, or you're a pallbearer at a, at, a, at a funeral, and you're packing that thing, and Bubba in the back and Bubba in the front's got it, but your hand's on it, right? You're not doing a bit of the lifting. Man, 
Jesus is telling, man, if you're under my yoke, you aren't lifting anything. I am carrying the full brunt of your sin, the full desire that God has for you. Guess what? He has it perfectly in me. Perfectly. Circle this. What What does he say to do? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. What's interesting about that word learn right there? It's it's a compared word to the same word that we get the word disciple. See, I want you to get this. One of the best pictures of discipleship is being right next to Jesus. That's that's what discipleship is. It is not simply the, the transfer of information, but it's intimacy. Man, why do I push us wanting to know God's Word? Why is biblical ignorance um, no more cool? It's because it's in direct reflection of, man, I, I want you to know God's Word because I want you to know who Jesus is. Not the American Jesus, not the African Jesus. What is the biblical Jesus? Who does He declare that He is? And when you realize, you understand that that, that yoke gets lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter because while you're intimate with Him, you are, you are close with Jesus. And, and He tells us this. It's not just that we are passive in this, but that we're pressing into this understanding. He's saying, learn from me. Learn from me. Learn from me and you will find rest. Do you get that? Be discipled by me. Learn from me. Walk with me. Wherever I go, you go. That's discipleship. It's not, God, I'm going this way. Why don't you go with me? No, that's not discipleship. That's you trying to be God over God. Discipleship is you walking where he leads. I I will Follow. It is walking alongside of him. So learn from me. Know me and you will find rest. Think about that paradox for a moment. College students. November's coming. In case you didn't know that. November for a college student is terrible. You hadn't done anything. And November comes and you got like seven tests, eight papers. And, and college, I teach college freshmen in, at Western, and I mean, they are freaking, I walk in the first day, and I, I, first day and I write on the board, November is coming, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm like, November is coming, ask upperclassmen, November is coming, and they, they don't have a clue, and they're walking in, I mean, they've got more free time than they've ever had in their entire life, and college students, freshmen will come out, class, I'm so tired, I, got, I stayed up all night watching Netflix and trying to write a paper, I got a test today. I haven't studied for. I'm so tired. I just don't know how to. I can't manage this time and the food here. I'm eating the same thing: Chick Fil A, fresh foods, steak and shake. I mean, where's that place we go? Popeyes or whatever it is on campus. I mean, you've got all this food. You've got all this free time. I'm so tired. I just wore out. I'm stressed out. I'm stressed out. I need to die. All right. You think that's not a sermon illustration? That's true. Okay. You oftentimes, okay, if you want to find rest, go study. That's what Jesus says. Please hear me. I am not anti-vacation, but vacation isn't your answer. It's not your answer. I typically need vacation from my vacation. Okay? 
Guess what? What do you run to when you're most tired? Is it upon the television? That's what my, I mean, Sundays are Sunday fun day at the baker's house. You know what my Sunday afternoon usually consists of? You know, I've been, I've, I've worked a full day practically by the time you've wakened. And so in some way, I think that I've earned rest. You know what rest looks like? Me in my pajamas, sitting in my recliner, watching television until about 10 o'clock. That's the Lord's day. That's rest. For some of you, you try to find rest in a bottle. You try to find rest in a drug. You try to find rest in a fantasy world that you've created in playing games or in, um, in pornography. You try to find rest in a hobby. You try to find rest in playing golf, rest in, in hunting for me, rest in, 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 in reading fantasy books. You try to find rest in your relationship with your wife or rest in your relationship with your husband or, or finding rest and expectation in your children. And it's like, man, immediately when you're tired, what do you run to? Why do we not run to his word? He doesn't say you'll find rest in all those other things, brothers and sisters. He says what? You will find rest in me. When it gets really tough and temptation begins to arise, I don't know about you, but I'm not a perfect person. Temptation arises in my life. And yet, Jesus is saying, man, you want to find rest. You won't find it in those things. You will only find rest in me. What you need is not another vacation. What you need is not another opportunity to, to read your favorite fantasy book or to watch your favorite television show. That's not ultimately what I need, man. What I ultimately need is to spend some time with Jesus, to be desperate for Him, to find rest and security for my wailing. I don't know, is anybody else really stressed out? Is anybody uh, oppressed? Does anybody struggle with depression, anxiety, any of those sorts of things of just life in general? Man, if you, if you want your kids to, to get Jesus and you want to be a better parent toward them, then don't run to simply a parenting book. Run to your, your prayer closet. Get on your knees before God. Get into his word and study. Lord Jesus, help me to, to be not a passive dad, but a, a person that reflects you as you pursue me. May I pursue my kids. May I pursue my wife. May I find my rest and hope, not in that all the things are happening according to plan, but that all things are hope happening according to your plans. Because see, man, I am type A about a lot of things in my life to the point where it's debilitating when things aren't going right. And you know what that's a reflection of? My rest isn't in Jesus. My, my, my rest, I'm trying to rest in my own accomplishment and ability to control the situation. Because I like that. I should have been military, I'm telling you. Do this or you're going to jail. Do this or you're kicked out. That's my nature is, is to be that way. And God, through pastoring, through parenting, through being a volunteer, through teaching, being a husband, being a dad is teaching me. And I think he does it on purpose. I really do. He causes things to be difficult. Why? To teach me that my identity is not found in my own ability. It's not found in my own skill set. My, my identity is found in the person and work of 
Jesus. All right, let's wrap it up. Jesus is saying, rest in me, you will find peace with God. Rest is found in the labor of love in Christ. Rest comes from seeking the first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Rest comes in saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not only does he reveal the Father to whom he wills, but he walks with them. He enables them for obedience. He causes humility in us. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but the older I get my relationship with Jesus, the, the more humble I become toward it at the realization of what he did. Because I realize how deplorable I am. That realization and rest comes at the realization that we can do nothing apart from Christ Jesus. This is the only part in Scripture where Jesus reveals our heart, his heart to us. Did you know that? And what does he say about his heart? I am gentle and lowly. What does lowly mean there? I'm humble. So just Jesus, again, what does he want us to do? If we go back to the earlier passages, he doesn't want us to be arrogant and proud. He wants us to be humble. But he isn't arrogant and proud. What is his heart? Humble. So Jesus illustrates how he wants us to be. And, and brothers and sisters, let me free you up. He makes us humble. You can't say I'm humble and proud of it. He makes us that way. So what should be our response? Number one, repent. Repent. Do not be like the cities who have seen the work of Christ and do not repent. Humility. Write this down. We don't have time to cover it today. Hebrews chapter 3. Go home and read it today. Because I know that's what you're all going to do. You're not going to watch any television today. No football. You know, you're just going to read Jesus' Bible all day long. Hebrews chapter 3, talking about rest, that it cannot be found in the non-believer. Rest is only found in the believers. Number two, worship God for his sovereignty as Jesus did. Thank you, God, for hiding this from the arrogant and revealing it to the children, to the humble, to the dependent. Number three, rest in his eternal rest. Sex and morality, is that bringing you rest? Money, is that bringing you rest? Addictions, rest? Morality, rest? Power, rest? Popularity, rest? Trusting in our government. Can I get an amen? Rest? Idolizing your spouse or kid, is that leading to rest? Seeking the approval of man, is that bringing you rest? No. None of those things are bringing you rest, brothers and sisters. There is greater rest than sleep itself. And that is the king's rest. In the words of my favorite, one of my favorite songs, it's a un, it doesn't have a title to the song. A lot of people call it Come to Jesus, but this is the first verse. It says this. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head, for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. Let's pray.